Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to your word today, especially this wonderful passage, and we pray that it would be a wonderful blessing to us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, as Drew said, today marks the 504th anniversary of the day an obscure monk changed the world. His name was Martin Luther and his actions in nailing his 95 points of debate on a notice board of the door of the church in Wittenberg, inviting the pastors and the theologians of the area to publicly discuss these issues with him, changed everything. It was a rather insignificant event at the time, but it was made public through the efforts of a local enterprising printer, And it was the spark that lit the fire of the great Protestant Reformation of the Church in the 16th century. Now there's much more to tell about the story of Luther and many others, which time doesn't permit this morning, except to note the several key teachings that came down to us from the Reformers, which continue to shape our theology and church life still These have been distilled into five expressions, all ending with the word alone, with each saying intended to represent an important distinction compared with the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Five sayings. Here they are, and I'll leave the Latin aside. And by scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. You could pick any of those and go on and on for weeks, but this morning we're going to explore one of them together. The truth that salvation is by grace alone, in the sense that you or I do not contribute to salvation through our own worthiness or through our works, that is, what you or I do, but our whole salvation rests upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. Not what you do, but what he has done. Now this is an important thing to do, even though you might think, well this is a fairly basic truth. This is kind of like grade level entry into the Christian faith. Maybe so. But even elite AFL footballers from time to time have to go back to first principles. They have to do such basic things as kicking the ball and handballing and marking a ball. And it's well known that when AFL teams do best, it's because they're doing the basics well. All of us need to remember the fundamentals, the essentials, the basics because they might be useful one day in passing on the knowledge of them to someone else. It's good to be drilled in the things that matter in relation to the scriptures and that's what we have an opportunity to do this morning as we explore this theme, Salvation by Grace, and look at Ephesians 2. And I want to do that this morning by asking you four questions that are all answered by the text. 
The first question is, what is salvation? And we see how Paul twice mentions in verse 6 and verse 8 this expression, by grace you have been saved. Now we use the word saved from time to time and unfortunately it's become something of a cliché. So it's good to ask, what does the Bible mean when it talks about the need to be saved? What do we mean when we say, I've been saved? Well, Christians say that we are, when we are saved, we mean many things and all of them are important. Here are three. First of all, we mean we've been spared the penalty of sin. We believe that all sin deserves its wages. And Paul says in Romans 6, The wages of sin is death. And so when a Christian speaks of being saved, we mean in the first place that we have been spared the due penalty for what my sin deserved. That I've been spared the judgment, the just judgment of God against ourselves because of our sins. Then also by this term we mean we've been rescued rescued from the power of sin. In our natural state, outside the saving grace of God, we are not just living with sin in us. Sin is our master. We are being held in slavery, captive to sin. That is, we cannot help but sin. Sin has invaded every aspect of our being, our hearts, our minds, our wills. And one of the things that Jesus does when he saves us is expressed in the words in the hymn, he breaks the power of reigning sin. Through saving us, and Jesus takes over us. He becomes our master as well as our saviour, kicking out and dethroning the old master of sin. Then also by this term we mean being brought into the family Many passages in the New Testament tell us that God has done this. He has purchased us at a price, the price of his own blood, reclaiming or redeeming or purchasing us for himself. Isaiah 53 says, We all like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way. Isaiah 1 says of us, From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness but bruises and sores and raw wounds. But because the Lord Jesus took the iniquity of us all upon himself and redeemed us by his blood, he purchased us for himself that we might be in fellowship with God again, with such fellowship as Adam and Eve knew in the garden, created for. Salvation involves being reinfolded into the family of God, like the father who welcomes home the prodigal son. Salvation is something that God does, bringing us back into his family. And so we may speak of a corporate dimension in the experience of salvation. Not just my salvation, but our salvation. Peter speaks of our common salvation. That is one that is shared. We belong to God. We belong to one another. Secondly, the question is, why do I need this salvation? Why does the Bible speak about the relationship God wants with people like us in terms of salvation? Well, it's answered there in verses 1 to 3 
of Ephesians 2 and you see Paul's immediate answer in this context. He tells you that apart from Christ, you were dead in sins, that you were in slavery to sin and that you were under the wrath of God because of your very nature. You see what Paul says? Here's the situation of a person apart from Jesus, dead in sins, physically alive and breathing and heart beating, but dead in sins, under the power of sin, facing the penalty of sin, the just wrath of God. That's why we need salvation. And so to reject the Bible's teaching at this basic level about the seriousness of sin leads to missing out entirely on the wonder of grace. Now think about this. If I was going to give you good news and bad news, what would you prefer to come first? The good news or the bad? Studies have shown that 78% of people, and I'm not making this up, want the bad news given to them first before they get the good news. And so 78% of us in reading this passage will be happy to know that the bad news comes before the good. And it's against this backdrop of the bad news, like when a jeweller shows off a glorious diamond against a black velvet, that the good news shines even brighter. See, if you don't appreciate understand or believe that mankind has a problem, then the wonder of the solution is going to be lost upon you. You might well have found a cure to cancer and might freely offer it to others, but it will only be those who know that they have this awful disease who will be the ones who will say, thank you, I needed that. Others will say, well, that's all very good, but I'm sorry I don't have a need. So if there's a voice in your head and your heart that disagrees with Paul's summation of mankind here, that we are dead in sin, please don't listen to that voice. Don't listen either to the voices of the world that basically say we are all good and that good people go to heaven. For the Bible teaches us the opposite, that good people will not be saved while bad people will be. Bad people in the sense of those who recognise their sinfulness. Jesus taught us that in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee who trusted in his own goodness and the tax collector who recognised and confessed his sin. It was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, that found salvation. So all the good news preached to you from all the faithful pulpits in this land won't make sense to you until you know what you need to be saved from in the first place. And that leads us to the other part of the question, why do we need this salvation? And that aspect aspect is this. We're not only saved by God, we're saved from God. We're saved from God in this sense. God's just judgment ought to rest upon us. In salvation, we're saved from a God who will bring his wrath, his just judgment upon us for our sin. We're saved by God. We're saved from God. 
good news of salvation in Jesus is that this God who has every right to judge us is a God who saves us instead. Saved from God, saved by God, saved for God, that is, for his glory and eternal fellowship with him. The third question is, why is this salvation by grace? Here again in verses 8 to 9, Paul tells us that this salvation is by grace and grace only. That is, not God's grace plus something that we do. It is not by God's grace as long as we do some sort of prior work in order to receive it or to be worthy of it. It's not grace plus works or works plus grace, whichever comes first. It's God's grace alone. We're saved by grace, Paul says. We are saved by God's divine favour. And he emphasises this in at least two ways in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Notice what Paul says. He says, for a start, this salvation is not of yourselves. Not a bit comes from something you have contributed. It's not about your worthiness. It's not about your character. It's not about your integrity. It's not about your lack of sin. It's not about the ample works that you do that are good. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift. It's freely given. It's a gift from God and not a result of works. Paul goes on to say that, just in case you missed it the first time, to say it's not a result of works, so that you can't boast. If you and I were contributing something to our salvation, uh, we would have some reason to say, Lord, I've done something that's caused myself to be saved, and I can boast in that. I have a reason to boast. And we'd end up being like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who went into the temple to pray and prayed along with the tax collector and prayed, oh Lord, I thank you, I'm not like him. But Paul says salvation is of grace and so we have no room for boasting. So it's all glory to God. And why is that so important? We'll go back to the first point again. We're dead in sin. What can a dead person do? to contribute to their salvation. If our salvation depends upon us and we're dead in sin, then we're stuck, we're sunk. And so salvation is wholly, with a W, wholly, totally, of God's grace. And those who confuse this by saying that we must cooperate with God's grace in order to be saved are qualifying something that Paul says is absolute here. We are saved by grace. We don't contribute to the gift. Here's the story. The story is about James Herriot, the British veterinary surgeon and author. And he took his wife, Joan, out to a birthday dinner as a special treat. All went well and the meal was being enjoyed until, to his horror, he realised in the middle of the meal that he'd left his wallet behind. Imagine that in a time and a day when credit cards were unknown and cash was the only commodity that was used to pay for anything. And so while he was thinking about paying off this debt by an endless load of dishes, 
that he'd been he'd soon be washing and the embarrassment of telling his wife that he couldn't pay for the meal a waiter came up and pulled him aside and said to him mr herriot someone has paid for your meal and as it turned out that person who'd paid for his meal was none other than his business partner who had wanted, knowing that James was taking his wife out for a meal, as a show of love and respect to his business partner, to provide that meal for him and for his wife. And so he paid ahead for that meal. You can imagine the relief which spread into James Herriot's heart as he had no means to pay for what he had just partaken It had been provided by another. Well, that's salvation. We have no means to pay. We don't have it in ourselves. We can't be deserving enough. We can't do enough, even if we could do anything. It must be a gift of God. It must be a gift of his grace. That's why I can draw your eye to two words. In verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Did you see those two words? But God. Two words that summarise the gospel. You can summarise the gospel in a sentence. John 3.16 however many words that is. You can summarise the gospel in five words. Christ died for our sins. Five words. You can also summarise the gospel, it's a really short summary, in two words. But God. See, verses 1 to 3 established our trajectory and it's worse than you think. It's not that we were up and we're now going down. It's that we were down and out already. Dead in sins, but God. Far from his kingdom, but God. Deserving of his judgment, but God. Outside of his family, but God. These two words bring great hope for the sinner, dead in trespasses and sins. These two words tell us that salvation is entirely God's work and in contrast to our sin. But God shows that God is unlike men, slow to anger, abounding with grace towards those who deserve wrath. And that's what Paul is emphasising here over and over. You've been saved by grace, giving God giving what we do not deserve, and by mercy, God sparing us from what we do deserve. Get to know these two sisters, grace and mercy giving us what we don't deserve, sparing us from what we do deserve. Get to know them. Thank God for them. And then fourthly, the last question, uh, where do works and obedience fit in? It's, It's all about grace. Does obedience even matter? If we're saved by grace, isn't it logical then that we ought to sin all the more, someone said to Paul once that grace might be given more and more. So we go on sin and more grace is given. So grace is multiplied as we keep on sinning. No, says Paul, that's not it. That's not the answer. Because he says in verse 10, 
we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. You see where Paul puts works in the equation. Works don't factor in as a means or a cause of our salvation. They are the goal and the result of what salvation does to us, of God's work in us. They are the cart that follows the horse, not the cart we put in front of the horse because the cart won't get anywhere. We do not work to be saved, but God saves us so that we would be like his son. Paul says in Romans 8.29, after telling us that all things work together for our good, he says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to what? Do you know the answer? To be conformed to the image of his son. What does it mean to be conformed to the image of his son? It means to become like him, to love the things that he loves, to hate the things that he hates, to live the way that he lived. And what did Jesus say his life was? He said, it is my food to do the will of him who sent me. So Jesus' disciples, those whom he saves, are hopefully going to feel the same way. We're going to want to do the will of him who saved us. We were created for his glory and we're going to want to bring him glory. Get these for more basics that we ought to know. In the children's catechism, the response to the question, why did God create you and everything else? The answer comes, for his own glory. And then to the question, how do you glorify God? The answer is by loving him and doing what he commands. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Saved by his grace, we're saved for his glory and the way that we glorify him is through good works, through obedience through love to God, love to one another, but those good works are not the grounds, nor do they contribute to the salvation that has been won for us, the debt paid on our behalf. Well, how do we bring this to a conclusion? Well, let's finish on this perspective. Let's remember and ask the question, who is writing this? Who is writing these things? It's Paul, of course. It's Paul who's writing this about salvation by grace. Paul who referred to himself in 1 Timothy 1 as the foremost of sinners. Now you might think that's strange. Surely Judas was a greater sinner than Paul. Or evil King Ahab in the Old Testament. Or King Herod in the New Wasn't Paul a pastor, a missionary, an apostle, an evangelist, a servant of Christ? He was. But before he was those things, he was also, as he says, in the same chapter, a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent opponent. So Paul wins the prize for the greatest sinner in the scriptures. And regardless of whether or not you think his sin greater than Adolf Hitler or Idi Amin or Jack the Ribber, 
Jack the Ripper is immaterial. The point is not how great was his sin, but how is it that God, how is it that God would save anyone at all, let let alone even a great sinner? How great is his grace? The hymn writer says, but what to those who find are this, nor tongue nor pen can show. The love of Jesus, what it is, none but his loved ones know. And seeing we began with Luther, let's hear from him and hear these words that he once wrote. Although out of pure grace, God does not impute our sins to us, he nonetheless did not want to do this until complete and ample satisfaction of his law and his righteousness had been made. Since this was impossible for us, God ordained for us in our place one who took upon himself all the punishment we deserve. He fulfilled the law for us. He averted the judgment of God from us and he appeased the wrath of God from being upon us. Grace, therefore, costs us nothing, but it cost another much to get it for us. Grace was purchased with an incalculable, infinite treasure, the Son of God himself. Have you tasted the taste of the grace of God? The scriptures say, taste and see that the Lord is good and blessed is the man who trusts in him. Grace for Paul who did that. Grace for all who do that. Grace greater than all our sin. As we sang, if you haven't received this gift of God's grace, Come to Christ, seek him, trust him and take in, if you can, the size and the measure of salvation by grace which, as it did in 1517, can still do in 2021. It can change the world by changing you and all who hear of such grace, amazing grace that's found in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how can we thank you enough for what you have done? As we've heard earlier today, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no way ever of being saved. But you, in wonderful grace and as we've read out of the great love that you had and your wonderful mercy you acted for us as while we were still sinners that Christ died for us that we might belong to him forever and we thank you for this grace that comes to us through faith And even that faith itself is not something we've worked up, but it's a gift 
and we're glad and thankful. But we pray, Lord, for others outside of your kingdom, that you would have grace upon them. And we pray that as we go about our daily duties and responsibilities, that you would help us to speak of this amazing grace, that you would freely cancel our debt and welcome us into your beloved family. Thank you for the promise and the words of Isaiah chapter 1. As you said, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. Thank you for the blood of Jesus who gave himself that we might be yours. So we pledge ourselves, Lord, to be yours. Keep us yours, we pray. And by that grace that saves, grant us grace that keeps and grace extending through us from you to others who do not deserve any of your blessings. We pray this through Jesus. Amen.